Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to McLean Presbyterian Church. We are glad that you are here and look forward to this time of of worship together. Today is Reformation Sunday. We are celebrating those events of some 500 years ago when the Lord brought a renewal and revival to his church, calling us back to his word, convicting his people of sin, and then encouraging them in his grace. And as we meet together here, as uh, the church gathered, as we are having this time of corporate worship together, we hope for a a similar time of renewal, a time where we will see the Lord in his word, be convicted of our sin, but then built up by his grace to us in Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that that will be your experience as we uh, work through this time of worship together. That you are here. Lastly, uh, to let you know that our new assistant pastor, David Stevenson, who will be coming to take responsibility of uh, our young adult ministries, Harvest, and uh, the fellows programs, as well as some other things, uh, is arriving this week. Uh, He has picked quite the week to travel, weather-wise. Um, but he will be making his way up here and um, meeting with Presbytery Committee and uh, starting to settle into his work here. So he will be with us next Sunday. I encourage you to pray for him. He's just coming up by himself just now. His wife and kids are uh, staying back in Alabama while they finish up selling their home. So I'd encourage that as a particular point of prayer. And then encourage you to uh, greet him face to face next week and welcome him as part of, of this body. Okay, we put those important things to one side and we prepare our hearts to meet with the living God by joining together in prayer. Great God and Father, we are a people who need the gospel. We really desperately need your grace to meet our sin, overwhelm it, and by your love be drawn back into relationship with you. Father, we pray that as you poured out your Spirit at the time of the Reformation to enable people to see you in your word and to be convicted of sin and encouraged by grace, would you pour out your Spirit upon us just now? Would we be a people who see you as you really are, uh, who uh, repent in light of who we really are, and to receive grace unspeakable and to meet our our every need? Father, we pray that so that you would... um, be pleased with a time of worship, that we wouldn't be here just going through the motions, but that we would be here overwhelmed by an experience of your gospel and therefore giving you praise and giving you glory and giving you the honor that you're due for all that you are and all that you've done for us in your son. Father, we need you to come and make our praise acceptable. So come and change our hearts and make it so to your glory. And of course, for our good, we pray in Jesus' perfect, perfect name. Amen. Our sermon this morning will come from a section at the end of Hebrews 9 and then into Hebrews chapter 10. But as part of our series on this book, we want to make sure to read uh, the entire work uh, in our Sunday morning services. So we're going to pick up our reading in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to break our reading up uh, just now. I'm going to read through to the end of this chapter. And then before the sermon, I'm going to read the start of chapter 10. And this will enable us to give our attention to it and also expedite our kids getting to children's church. I know how wriggliness increases the longer the reading goes on. don't know if that's parents or children, maybe both. So Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1, you'll find this on page 1005 if you're using a pew Bible. Let's read the Lord's Word together. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, a death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the, most, the, the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. 
The section that we began continues into chapter 10, so let's now read verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 10, continuing from where we left off together. In verse 1 we read, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they, not have escaped, would they not cease to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifices for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Friends, let's pray together. Great Father above, as we come to this text that is rich and deep, we ask that you would come and speak clearly to us and enable us to hear clearly. Father, I know that I need the truth of this text, and I know that we need the truth of this text. We are people who need the gospel this morning. And Lord, you are here and you give it to us freely. So do that, we pray, during this time. Would we be challenged and encouraged and built up by your words to us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As a dad of two young girls, I have some surprising abilities. I'm really good at some things that you might not expect. For example, I have a very high score at the computer game Just Dance 3. Um, I know most of the words to call me maybe. Um, I know why Taylor Swift and her ex are never, ever, ever getting back together. Like, ever. Um, I know when it comes to colors, the difference between fuchsia and pink. Um, I know uh, when it comes to lip products, the difference between bam and gloss. Who knew? Um, I know when it comes to shoes that there's a difference between wedges and blended wedges. Who knew? Who knew? Well, I, as a dad of two girls, have, have learned such things. And I've also learned uh, to be surprisingly good at doing girls' hair, okay? Doing little girls' hair. I'm surprisingly good at, at making braids uh, 
for my little ones, I'll, you know, from time to time have the, the joy and privilege of, of, of braiding their hair. And making a braid is what we are going to do together this morning. This is a rich and deep passage that covers a lot of ground, but there are three strands that run throughout this text that I want to focus on together this morning. Three strands that run throughout this text that when woven together form a braid of gospel truth that I need for my soul this morning, that I think you need for your soul this morning. The Lord speaks to us in this text about the first strand, the seriousness of our sin. He then goes on to show us a second strand of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to deal with our sin. And then thirdly, he shows us the the last strand, the security of God's love that we are ushered into as we experience the sufficiency of Jesus on our behalf. We're going to look at each of these strands by looking at a key text or a key summary verse of it. So let's dive in together and look at the first strand of our braid, the seriousness of sin. This is made clear to us throughout chapter 9 and then summarized in verse 22. Look with me of chapter 9 where we read, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. At chapter 9 is all about blood. It starts off with the Old Testament regulations for worship, describing the place of worship and the activity of the priests and the shedding of the blood that was required by the law. It then moves in from verse 11 and onwards to show us about the New Testament shedding of blood, the shedding of Jesus's own blood. And as we have worked our way through Hebrews, we have seen this time and time again, that all the Old Testament sacrifices that were made repeatedly and again and again in a wide variety of ways were never themselves intended to take away sin. Sin, the, pro- you know, the, the problem of the human condition cannot be dealt with with, with such um, shallow sacrifices. No, they were designed to be a picture or an illustration that would drive us toward Jesus. And Jesus would be the one who would come as the true and greater sacrifice, that he would shed his own blood on the cross that we might be forgiven. This passage is all about blood. Now, why all this talk about blood? It's a, it's a nasty topic that kind of makes us a little queasy. Often when a child falls and, and skins their knee, they'll be okay until they see the blood, and then they'll cry. Or I even remember myself, about two years ago, I was up the side of my house on a ladder cleaning the siding. You remember that story? Um, and uh, I jumped down and caught my wedding ring in the ladder. Right? And landed and thought it was okay till I looked at my hand. Blood just pouring down. Then I got all queasy, went to my stomach, got lightheaded, had to sit down. Right? There was something about the blood that has a, a visceral effect on us. There's something about when you go to, when you go to uh, give blood, that's just a kind of nasty thing to see it pouring into that jar. Uh, even this conversation, first thing on a Sunday morning, is probably not exactly what you were looking for, right? You know, why all this talk about blood? All this talk about blood is designed to highlight the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Sin is so serious that it cannot be forgiven without bloodshed, without this nasty visceral, hard thing that comes with the shedding of blood. Sin, the great malady of the human race. 
is described um, in the Shorter Catechism. The Shorter Catechism is a brilliant, brilliant thing that you should study and learn because it is rich and full of truth. I got ordained on the back of knowing the Shorter Catechism. If you know it, you'll just really be a blessing to your soul. And it describes sin uh, in two ways. It talks about the sort of surface level of sin, and it says that sin is when we do what we're not meant to do. Do what we're not meant to do. When we reject God's good plan for our flourishing by doing what we're not meant to do. So I may say to my children, I, I, I do not eat that whole tub of ice cream. I know that that won't be good for you. You will not flourish if you live in that way. If you eat the entire tub, you will feel sick. And what do they do? They take and they eat and they take and they eat just like we too can eat and eat. Uh, doing what we're not meant to do, ignoring God's good plan for our flourishing. So that's in, in one sense, that's what sin is. And in another sense, of course, sin is also not doing what we are meant to do. Not doing what we are meant to do. So the Lord says to us in his good and wise counsel, this, if you live in this way, you will flourish. I say to my children, you ought to uh, clean your teeth. If you do not clean your teeth, your breath will smell and you will get cavities and that will not be good for you. You ought to do this. And if they don't, of course, those things happen. And yet day after day, time after time, we don't do those things that we're meant to do. On the surface level, this is what sin is. Doing what we're not meant to do and not doing what we are meant to do. But there's really a much deeper root and a much deeper problem to help us understand the seriousness of sin. In that sin isn't just a problem on the surface, it's a relational problem. Sin is a relational problem whereby we reject God's good and perfect plan for our lives and for our flourishing. We say, Lord, I know how you have said I should live, but I know better. I have chosen to do this. I have chosen not to do that. I know how I am going to live. So sin is a relational problem in that it is an act of treason against God, saying I know better than you. Think of it this way. If, if my wife says to me, honey, I need you to be home by six so that I can go and do this thing. And I say, sure, I'll be there, no problem. Then I roll in at nine o'clock and say, oh, sorry, you know, we had a happy hour at work and I just stayed too long and had fun and I'm sorry I'm late, right? That's going to upset her. Now, (laughs) it's not the surface sin so much. It's not the three hours. It's what that says about our relationship. It's that I did not prioritize her enough, care about her enough to do what I said I would do. The problem is a relational one. The relational problem led to surface things. But underneath, it's the rejection of that relationship. And at root, that's what sin is, a rejection of our relationship with the Lord, treason against him. And now you see why sin is so serious, because what punishment does treason deserve? Treason deserves death. Treason deserves bloodshed. Treason earns the shedding of blood. And this is important for us to spend time upon and reflect upon it, the seriousness of our sin, because we live in a day and we live in a culture that says, sin's not that big a deal. The whole sin word, who uses that word? We don't use that word. Mistakes, difficulties, challenges. Everyone's doing their best. Uh, No one's perfect. Uh, You know, the Lord will be pleased if we do our best and he'll be gracious in the end. Understand, that is not how the Bible talks about sin. That is not how the Bible talks about sin. Uh, when Job sees his sin, he says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and in ashes. When David sees his sin, he says, I am a worm and not a man. 
When Isaiah sees his sin, he says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. When Peter sees his sin, he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When Paul sees his sin, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And each and every one of us can look inward and know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that sin is alive and well within us too. And you know, not one time, there's no place in the Scripture where God ever responds to one of these confessions by saying, don't worry, it's not that big a deal. You're doing your best. No one's perfect. But we'll get there in the end. That is not his response to sin. We need to see clearly in a culture that is confused about sin. Sin is a big deal. First of all, it does damage to ourselves. Our refusal to follow God's good design for our lives results in cavities in our souls and dyspepsia in our hearts. Remember, my counselor saying to me once, uh, I'd apologize to him, and I said, I feel like you and Rosie get the worst of me. And he chuckled and affectionately said, James, you get the worst of you. Sin has a very seditious and eroding impact upon who we are as people. But it's not just ourselves. Of course, sin damages others, either actively because we are abusive to them through our anger, our lack of patience, our greed, our self-absorption. We are um, actively unkind to them or passively because we are neglectful to them. We don't pour into our loved ones like we ought. We don't uh, prioritize our spouse. We don't spend time with our kids. We don't love our friends as we should. Sin damages ourselves, but sin damages others too. But most of all, sin is so serious And sin deserves bloodshed because sin damages our relationship with God. It is treason against the king that deserves death, deserves bloodshed. Do you agree with this teaching of Scripture? Do you agree with this first strand that works its way through our text? Do you see that you are sinful? That, yeah, you've done things you ought not to and not done things you should, but really you've rebelled against God, and because of that you deserve death? If you see that, be encouraged. Why? That's a strange thing to say. Because grace is teaching your heart to fear, and grace your fears will relieve. Let's look at our second strand together. Yes, sin is serious. It deserves the shedding of blood, but forgiveness is possible through bloodshed. Whose blood? Strand two, the sufficiency of Jesus. Let's look at verse 26 of chapter 9. As it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Forgiveness requires bloodshed, but it does not require yours. It does not require yours. Jesus sheds his blood to be the ultimate sacrifice given on our behalf. This is why he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for what? For the forgiveness of sins. Paul reflects, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. John continues, if we walk in light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Yes, we see the seriousness of our sin, and we see that it deserves death, but as soon as our passage has shown us that strand, it starts to weave in another, which is the sufficiency of Jesus to deal with this sin, 
The sufficiency of Christ to take our sin, to take our surface problems and our root rebellion and deal with them by taking the punishment upon himself so that we really can be forgiven. And scripture wants us to understand that. It wants us to feel the weight of this truth, the the weight of Jesus' sufficiency uh, on our behalf. It gives us a number of illustrations or pictures to try and work this truth in, work in the sufficiency of Jesus. Uh, Here's uh, three of them. Uh, Starting off, first of all, uh, in in verse 17 of, of the chapter we are in, chapter 10. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. A picture to help us understand the sufficiency of Jesus. Such is his work that God says, I will remember their sins no more. What does it even mean that God can not remember something? What is that? I mean, he's not like, I forgot where I put my keys. I forgot to do this, that, or the next thing. Surely he isn't an absent-minded God. No, of course not. He's saying, I will remember them no more. There's a subjective sense and an objective sense to this. First of all, he's saying, I will remember them no more because yes, they are there, but the work of Christ so overshadows them that they are not primarily in view. When I look out and see you, I don't look at that sin. I look at Jesus. Of course, though, in the work of Christ, there's a more objective element, too, in that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself, and so he has dealt with it. He has what? Uh, Put it away. Put away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This means that in uh, the court of God, your sin is inadmissible. In the courtroom of God itself, there is no sin. It is not part of the evidence. It is not before his face. Why? Because all he sees is Jesus. All he sees is the sufficiency of him. So your guilt and your shame and the darkness that is in our hearts is not before his eyes. He sees him. I will remember your sins no more. Be convinced of the sufficiency of Christ. Secondly, second picture that we get from the book of Micah. Who is God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. This is great. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Isn't that great? Hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I don't know when you're you're reflecting upon your sin uh, the psalmist describes it as your, your strength sometimes sapped as in the heat of summer, that your sin is ever before you. And, and sometimes you have this sense that it's just always there. Your brokenness and, and your, your, your guilt is just, it's always before you. And this passage is saying, Jesus is so sufficient that he has taken your sin and he has removed it from you. He has taken it away. He's, he has swooped into the hall of McLean Presbyterian Church He has scooped it from your shoulders. He has traveled out far into the Atlantic and he has hurled it into the depths of the sea. What a great picture that your sin has been removed from you. Your sin has been dealt with. It's been, in a sense, separated from you. So that Jesus, when, he, when God, God, sorry, when he looks at you, does not see that closeness of sin, but has hurled it into the depths of the sea. Last picture to convince us about the sufficiency of Jesus. Uh, Famous one, Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? What does that mean? It's an eternal distance. 
The song says, from one scarred hand to the other. I like that. In eternal distance. Jesus is so sufficient that he has come, taken your sin, and removed it from to all eternity past. So that God in his throne room does not see you in your mess, but sees you in him. The seriousness of our sin is overwhelmed by the sufficiency of Jesus. Some things seem big until you see something bigger. A couple of things I saw on the news this week. Average house, pro- house prices in Nova, 400,000K. Ridiculous. Cost of the International Space Station, 157 billion. Right? 400,000, not so bad. Um, amount of water in the Chesapeake Bay, 17 trillion gallons. That's a lot of water. Amount of water in the Atlantic, 18 quadrillion gallons. I don't even know what quadrillion is. Right? Um, our Earth, which seems a big deal, fits inside the sun 1.3 million times. Some things are big till you see something bigger. And you need to see the seriousness of your sin, and we need to not make light of it. But then we need to move to see the sufficiency of Christ, that our sin, as serious as it is, pales in comparison to the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's work for us. Do you agree with this? Do you see his sufficiency on your behalf? This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian, to come to God and say, I recognize the seriousness of my sin. I recognize that I've rebelled against you, not just on the surface, but deep down at my very core. And Lord, I recognize that you provided Jesus for that. There is grace for that. I see his sufficiency for me and ask to be in relationship with you. Do you agree with him that Jesus is sufficient? If you do, if you do agree then the result should be our third strand. Having seen the seriousness of our sin and seen how Jesus is sufficient to deal with it, that ushers us into the security of God's love. Look with me at verse 14 of chapter 10. The security of God's love. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's a strange verse that really highlights that there's two sides to our salvation. First of all, we are being sanctified. We are being perfected. On the level of the surface sins, God is making us more like his son. He is enabling us to follow him and that good plan he has for our flourishing. He is enabling us to become more like Christ, to become more like we were created to be, to become more like what we will be for all eternity. He is at work in this process of sanctification to make us more like Jesus. And that's an encouragement to me, and I want it to be an encouragement to you that as you struggle so often with the same things again and again and again, God is at work to make progress in your soul to make you more like Christ. We are being sanctified, being perfected. And yet, we also read that by this offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, those who are being made perfect have already been made perfect. This is dealing not on the level of the surface, but on the core. Jesus is so sufficient that he has dealt with your treason against God. He has dealt with your rebellion against him so that you are now in full, free relationship with him. Understand what this is saying. It is saying 
Believer in Christ, hear me on this. Hear me. You are never more loved by God than you are right now. In all eternity, he will not love you anymore because he could not love you anymore right now. You will never be more accepted. You will never be more embraced than you are right now through the gospel of Christ. You have been made perfect. And yes, there's work to do, but that is not about your relationship with him. You are safe and secure in the arms of the gospel. This is a hard truth for us to believe. And one of Satan's greatest ploys is to make us doubt God's love for us. He really wants to sow that fear, that anxiety, that worry, that dread that comes from not knowing if you're secure in his love. And the Bible calls him a liar and says, you are never more loved than you are right now. Why? Because God doesn't view us on the basis of the seriousness of our sin, but on the basis of the sufficiency of Jesus. Let me read to you... uh, a section of my journal that is intermingled with quotes from a book I'm reading. Uh, journaling is a new thing for me, and I think like most men, I find it kind of hard. I, my journals tend to be, did this, did that, did the next thing, went to bed, right? It's kind of like, the difference. Between, there's no difference between my journal and my calendar. You know, there's the same thing. It's like, how do you feel? I don't know how I feel, right? Um, but here, I'm, I'm trying. Um, here's a section from my journal reflecting on these things, uh, containing quotes from a book I'm reading. We have a tendency to project how we feel about ourselves onto God, which is wrong. Unless we love ourselves compassionately, intensely, and freely, and we don't. We are plagued by that inner murmur of self-reproach and assume, often tacitly, that God feels the same way about us. He is angry with us disappointed by our lack of zeal, frustrated by our recurring sins, disapproving of our priorities and passions, dissatisfied with the way we follow him. The melancholy spirit of Chekhov's plays, you are living badly, my friend, haunts our consciences, and so we lack peace in our souls. But this is grossly inconsistent with the gospel, indeed antithetical to it. When we think that God sees us as we see ourselves, we are guilty of idolatry, patterning him after our own image. As Pascal wrote, God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. God warned against us in the Ten Commandments. He insists that we see him not as we see ourselves, but as he has revealed himself to us. And how has he revealed himself? As a God of relentless love who pursues us in his Son. And having sent him and crucified him and raised him to life, God turns, looks us straight in the eye, and gives us his assessment. You are my beloved, and with you I am well pleased. Oh, that my soul would be able to grasp the truth of this gospel, that we may rest in its security. God loves us, and he wants to alter our attitude toward ourselves, that we might agree with him and take sides with him against our own self-evaluation. He wants us to agree. We are loved indeed. The love of God is the result of seeing the sufficiency of Christ. It is an objective reality that is yours today. And I long to know this love, and I long for you to know this love, and then I long for you to apply this gospel love to the exact point that you need it. 
to your fears with your children, to your fears with your spouse, to your anxieties about your future, to the sins that you are wrestling with and struggling through. Know that God loves you. Know that God loves you. He promises to continue to bless you in this love, saying, do not fear, why? For I am with you. Do not be dismayed, why? Because I am your God. And I will strengthen you, and I'll help you, and I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why? Because he loves you. It's this objective love of God, your subjective experience this morning. It can be through Christ. So that's our braid then from this text. We see the seriousness of sin. We see the sufficiency of Jesus, and we see the security of God's love that is ours through it. I am glad that I can braid hair. I'm glad I can do well in just dance three. I'm even glad I know about Taylor Swift. What I really want is to know the love of God. And I long for you to know this love as well. That we may be secure in it. And through that security, live full free, vibrant, fun, wild lives for Jesus. Let's pray. O God of love, would you direct our hearts into the ocean vast of blessing that is your love for us in Christ. We do see the seriousness of our sin, Lord. We see that it cannot be forgiven without the shedding of blood. We don't want to take it lightly. We add our voices to those uh, great biblical heroes who have confessed their sins. We recognize, Lord, that we have wandered far from you, both on the surface and at our very core, guilty of treason against you. But, Lord, in response to this, we see the sufficiency of Jesus. We see that through his blood you have forgotten our sins. You've cast them into the sea. You've removed them as east from the west. And because of that, we exhale into the security of your love. We enjoy, Lord, the great reality that we are yours. You are pleased with us because of your Son. Father, would you give us the grace to believe these things? We want that more than anything. In the name of your perfect Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.